Their reality TV show, Alone, is a show in which survival experts compete to see who can make it the longest out in the wild. Anybody watch this show? Yeah, a few folks. They take these contestants to different extreme locations, right? The Arctic, Patagonia and Argentina, uh, Northern Mongolia, British Columbia. And they're given 10 items, I think they get to choose that. Bear spray, a camera, because it's a TV show, right? And a GPS, in case they just really need to be rescued. Contestants are exposed in every way imaginable. To the elements, freezing temperatures and snow and sleet, wild animals, like a charging grizzly bear, near starvation, because if you don't catch your food, you don't eat. Sometimes I watch these things and I'm like, would I be able to do this? But in the midst of all the things these contestants are exposed to, the hardest thing for many contestants to face is what isolation in the wilderness reveals and exposes about them. The first season of the show, and I didn't watch this, I read about this, so if I get the details wrong, you can correct me. Two contestants were the kind of tough guys. There was a police officer, there was a lifelong gun owner. Well, the police officer discovered he was terrified of the bears that were native to this location, and he lasted 12 hours. The gun owner became tormented by the howling of the wolves and lasted two days. And then there was Mitch, Massachusetts resident, dreadlock, hippie kind of guy, a contrast to these tough guys. Well, the first night, he could hear the sound of the bears rummaging around his tent in the pouring rain, but he turned his camera on and said, well, if the bears come in, I'll shine my headlamp at them and jab them with my knife. He had a plan. Mitch lasted 43 days, and he left only because he felt guilty he wasn't spending more time with his mother, who was dying of cancer. The wilderness is a place in which we are exposed, exposed to dangers and exposed in what we're made of. Our fears, our doubts, our temptations, and our strengths. Today, in our gospel passage, Jesus enters the wilderness. And what gets exposed is his 100% trust in and loyalty to the Father and his 100% choice of solidarity with us, with humanity. Jesus proves faithful where Israel and Adam failed. Jesus comes through the wilderness, and it becomes clear right from the start what type of Messiah he will choose to be. That is the primary thing that the story about Jesus in the wilderness exposes. And by the way, have you ever thought about that only Jesus could have told this to the disciples? That's pretty cool. So that's what this story exposes about Jesus. But that's not the only thing. The story also exposes us to something about how the devil works to try to trip us up. Now, we know that the devil's the father of lies, that the devil likes lies, but sometimes those lies are kind of hard to figure out and hard to resist because they aren't bold-faced lies, but hidden premises that are kind of false or twisted. Behind the three tests that Jesus faces in our passage today are three lies of the devil. False premises the devil tries to get Jesus to buy, tries to get Jesus to buy about what it means to be God's beloved. And lies I think the devil tries on us in our own time in the wilderness. So as we enter Lent again this year, re-entering the wilderness with Jesus, what are those lies, those false premises that Jesus sees through and, and rejects? Lies he wants us to expose so we can see through them too. 
Let's look at the lie in the first temptation. Jesus is hungry. He didn't have bagels from Panera available. He hasn't eaten in a long time, maybe not exactly 40 days, but that's the number of completeness. Again, solidarity with Israel wandering in the wilderness 40 days. There's all sorts of resonances here, but it was a good long time. And the devil shows up and says, you don't need to be hungry. You don't need to wait. You're the son of God for Pete's sake. Turn this stone into bread and eat. What's so bad about that? It's interesting how this first temptation and Adam's temptation revolve, revolve around eating. Question is, will Jesus use his unusual powers to satisfy his own needs, or will he rely on God to provide for him? Will he cheat in his incarnation, or will he remain in solidarity with us? Will he use and manipulate creation for his own purposes, or will he allow the stone to remain its stony self? We know that Jesus passes the test. Thanks be to God. But the unspoken premise underneath that Jesus rejects, that we need to reject too, is God's beloved shouldn't hunger. You're the son of God. You don't need to stay hungry. If you're beloved, you should be comfortable and filled up, taken care of, living the good life. That's what it means to be beloved, right? Jesus rejects that. We can be beloved and hungry. Under God's care and suffering, the pangs of unmet desire. We live in a world, in, in a culture that tells us, if we have a desire that's going unmet, that's a problem. And I have a product for you. That to be human is to get our desires met. And Jesus says, no. In some ways, we are at our most human when we are at our most vulnerable. For that is when God shows up to feed us with what we didn't even know that we needed. This uh, verse that Jesus quotes back to the devil about man does not live by bread alone comes from Deuteronomy 8. And it's remembering how the Lord brought Israel into the wilderness to test them. We don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that. To test them and expose to them what was in their hearts, whether they would follow the Lord or not. And that's what our hungers and unmet needs do for us, too. It exposes what's in our hearts, what we really rely on, the things we use for our own purposes rather than trust that God will provide for us. This is why fasting is one of the great classic traditions of Lent. Debbie Thomas puts it this way, the goal of these fasts, chocolate, TV, Facebook, etc., is to sit with our hungers, our wants, our desires, and learn what they have to teach us. Hunger in and of itself is not a virtue. It's a classroom. We too are tempted to believe that God's beloved shouldn't hunger. And Jesus says, nope. Don't run from your hunger. Don't cover it up with secondary things. Your hunger is where God wants to prove himself mighty to save. Then we get to the lie and the second temptation. The devil appeals here to Jesus' ego. Look at all the kingdoms of the world. Their wealth, their might, their glory, their power. I can get you where you want to go. Think of that. The kingdom with the Jewish king. You can have all the righteousness you want. You can free your people from Rome. Imagine the greatness of your name. You know, just bow down to me. I'll snap my fingers and it's done. Easy. 
Now, I have to think this one was pretty easy for Jesus to reject. It's a little more obvious the way the devil puts it. If the devil showed up to me and said, bow down to me, I think I'd be able to say no, I hope, hopefully, I think. (laughs) But what if the unspoken premise is harder for us to resist? The devil's unspoken premise here, the lie which Jesus rejects is, God's beloved should be great. Or more subtly, God wants you to do great things for him. That narrative is harder to resist. I kind of grew up hearing that in church. God wants you to do great things. You know, we celebrate missionaries and big ministries and uh, people who fight injustice and spectacular conversions and big churches. Even stories like we're telling right now about Ukraine where the little guy's fighting back. Like, we like those stories, the big stories. We love greatness. And if it's going to be small, it had better be excellent. Well, what's wrong with greatness? Anyway, here's the question. Does God want us to do great things for him? In his response, Jesus tells us that what God wants is something else. God wants our love and our loyalty. Love the Lord your God and serve him only. God doesn't ask us to do great things for him just for the heck of it. He asks us to follow him where he leads. The lie the devil tells here is that greatness is his to give, and it doesn't matter how. Commentator Helen Chen points out there's resonances here with Psalm 2, which Jesus would have known well. In Psalm 2, Yahweh says, You are my son, my beloved son. I'll make the nations your inheritance. Jesus didn't need to bow to the devil to get this stuff. It was his already. It came not through the glory of an earthly kingdom, but through a cross. And the same is true for us. We are beloved. What God wants from us is not great things, but our love, our loyalty, our commitment. Sometimes that will look big and great and glorious, but it will always also lead us to the cross. When I was a student at Wheaton, and Wheaton is one of those places where full of people dreaming of doing great things for the kingdom, right? I went on what they called an extreme mission trip. It was extreme because we were backpacking in the mountains and the jungles of Peru for a month, which I love, you know, it was a great, I mean, it was a great trip. I spent most of this trip wrestling with whether or not I was, this trip was doing anything for the kingdom. There's, you know, short-term mission trips, there's a whole thing. I don't know, was anybody saved? Did it matter that I was telling my testimony in Spanish in this church where people knew Jesus anyway? Were we just a bunch of college students having a good time and calling it a mission trip? I still have all those questions about this trip. But whenever I think of this trip, I think of a man I met. I met him in a small shop in the mountains of Huamatuco, Peru. The Iraq war was going on at the time, one of them. And I was talking with this man about this in Spanish, because my Spanish was decent at that point. And he was asking how we could reconcile our Christian faith with our country's actions. No idea how I had this conversation in Spanish back then. I was trying to tell him about Jesus, and I'm not a natural evangelist, so this was a little out of my comfort zone, and I told him about Jesus long after he was interested. I have no clue whether that made any difference in his life. But I'll tell you this. I still think of him, and I pray. Prayer 
is another one of these Lenten disciplines, these classic disciplines. It's a very small and hidden thing that often feels a little powerless. It's not something we think will accomplish great things, but it is in prayer where we learn to rest in our belovedness in the Lord and where we resist our temptation to greatness at any cost. Prayer is a small and hidden thing where we learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, where he does his work in and through us, and where God will prove himself mighty to save. Then we get to the third temptation, and this is the weirdest one to me, and I think the trickiest for us to kind of understand what it's about. Why did the devil try this? Why would it be wrong for Jesus to do this? Again, this temptation is attacking Jesus' trust in God. Again, Helen Chen talks about this, uh, paraphrases the temptation. See if God will really keep his word and rescue you. Rescue you. Make him prove it. Make him prove it. It's also, again, attacking Jesus' solidarity with us, because we know from life, if I jumped off the roof here, I would get hurt. Well, the unspoken premise, the false lie underneath which Jesus rejects is, The ways God has already shown himself faithful to you don't count. Don't look at those. It's as much of a distraction technique as anything else. It might play on Jesus' fears about the future, tries to get him to focus on himself and doing this, this crazy thing rather than on the Father. It is sneaky. This is a sneaky temptation. Devil quotes scripture and everything out of context, of course. Well, Jesus' response to this temptation takes us back to Deuteronomy 6 which remembers Israel at a place called Massa, where their demand a sign that the Lord was with them. Moses, produce water, or we won't believe the Lord is here. Never mind the Lord brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, parted the Red Sea, gave them manna, did all this stuff. Do it now, or we won't believe. That's then the response is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's already done these things. Jesus resists the temptation to ask God the Father to prove he'll rescue Jesus on Jesus' own terms. I imagine Jesus out in the wilderness at night, looking up at the stars and remembering the promises of Abraham, remembering, you know what? The Spirit descended on me in the Jordan River. I heard the words of the Father telling me I'm beloved. The Spirit has filled me and led me out here to resist these temptations. That's how God has proven himself to me. I can choose to trust him now. The ironic thing is that the devil is trying to get Jesus to get God to prove himself, and the proof is in Jesus resisting the temptation. Anyway, that's not in my notes, so if that made no sense, that's why. (laughs) When we are in the wilderness, it can be very tempting to lose sight of God's past faithfulness in the midst of our fear and suffering about the present and the future, to demand he act now and take it away. One of the wilderness seasons in my own life was uh, after Ruthie was born, It took me two years to sleep normally again. I had bad insomnia and was in bad shape. And sometimes I'd be awake, you know, three in the morning or whatever, crying out in the night, like, God, can you just zap me to sleep or something? Are you working? Are you doing anything? And we might have similar feelings right now about a lot of things. Can you zap COVID away? Can you zap this investigation away? Can you zap... Uh, All the problems in our nation away, there's a lot of them, be a lot of zapping. Ukraine, Russia, maybe our finances, our mental health, addictions we've been battling for a long time. Can you just take it away? God, you promised to rescue us. Where are you? 
How can I trust you to lead us out of the wilderness when you're not fixing this right now? It is just too much. Well, there's another unspoken premise there that we need to challenge. And it's that God wants to save his beloved from the wilderness rather than through the wilderness. Psalm 91, which the devil misquotes, talks about how God walks with us in the midst of the things that befall us. God the Father didn't spare God the Son from the wilderness. He did walk with him through the Spirit and gave him the strength to walk through. That's how God works in our lives too. He doesn't rescue us from the wilderness. In fact, sometimes he takes us there to expose us to what's true about us, to turn our hearts to him in humility and dependence, to help us repent. The fact that we are in the wilderness is not a sign that God has not been faithful. It's also not a sign that we've not been faithful. It might actually be a sign that the Lord is doing something in us. So what is our time of wilderness? Because we are in a wilderness time. I think we recognize that. What is it exposing? About each of us as individuals? About us as a community? What are the particular strengths and weaknesses that are coming out that might feel really uncomfortable? What are the temptations? What are the little sneaky lies and false premises that the Lord wants us to resist and just say no? As we think about those questions, I want to encourage us toward community. Because sometimes we read this passage about Jesus going alone into the wilderness, and we think, I have to do that too. I have to go off, go off on my own. And solitude is important. This is a place where our, some of our fears get exposed. But also, it is in community. Well, here's a good quote. John Chrysostom, Martin Luther, things like this. The devil attacks those who are lonely. We need each other. It is in community that we remind one another of God's goodness, of his past faithfulnesses, and say, he will be faithful now. It's in community that we can give generously to one another and to those in need and receive the help that we need. It is in community that we pray. It is in community that the Lord will prove himself mighty to save. We are in the wilderness. Don't run from it. Because the wilderness does not belong to the devil. Jesus triumphed in the wilderness and through the wilderness. And we follow after him. In company with one another and the communion of saints. Not alone. Filled with the spirit. Everything that is exposed in the wilderness, in you, in me, in us together, is something that Jesus died to redeem. To remake. Weeds to be rooted out, strengths to be celebrated. Because remember, even in the wilderness, flowers bloom. Amen.